Well, we do. We begin a new series of messages today on Together, and may I say, I'm glad you're here together with us, and I'm glad you're well. And uh, it's great to have you here, and we want to turn our Bibles this morning as we begin this series to uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 1. As we do, uh, God, let me just say that God is a God of togetherness. Say, Say that with me, if you will. God is a God of togetherness. Okay. Maybe you didn't get that. Am I on? Am I on? All right. Say this again. All right. Or say it for the first time. And let me hear it. God is a God of togetherness. Say it with me. God is a God of being together. That's right. And as we look at the church as a whole, that's what we're talking about. And I know the church has sort of fallen on some bad times sometimes as far as people's opinions. But in our church, our vision is one I think of being very challenging and being very passionate. As we say, our vision is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ where we live, work, play, and go that the son would not settle the ministry of First Baptist or First Baptist, listen to me, Cross Life Church. And so our mission is one that's very, very practical. And our mission basically is how we're gonna reach the vision as we teach people to uh, love, know, trust, and follow Jesus Christ. But you say, hey, that's the attraction, right? I mean, that's what makes the church valuable, that we have a vision and a mission. No, really it doesn't. I mean, it makes it maybe more attractive, but the attraction is the church itself. The value is in the church. Now, I know that as I say that, 10 million people who claim to be born again don't ever darken the door of a church here in America. On the other hand, you heard just a few moments ago, we had 11 people called into full-time Christian vocational ministry just last week. They're saying, not only do I love the church, but one of, the day, one of these days, I want to become a leader in the church. And I remember when I was uh, younger and I was growing up and coming up through high school and college, we had a lot of um, kind of not ill feelings, but a lot of negative feelings about the church. We, we just thought all these things are wrong with the church. And so my job as a young guy, knowing it, everything, of course, was to fix it, right? And the way I was going to do that, I felt called into full-time evangelism. And I was going to go from church to church, kind of already doing that at that point, even in college. I was going to go from church to church and preach the gospel and try to fix everything. Well, Uh, That wouldn't have worked out anyway, but what happened was I graduated from college, and because of some injuries I had, just kind of barely having enough time to study, I didn't really have any chance to plan any kind of ministry. And so when I got out, I was offered this uh, temporary pastorate while they looked for a pastor, and so I took it. And as I was an interim pastor of that church, I began to really start loving the people, And not only that, they started loving me. I know that's kind of hard to believe maybe, but they they did. They they started loving me. And and then, and then we had this great evangelistic uh, time during that summer where people were getting saved. And we baptized them all in August, uh, kind of their their time of baptism there in the creek uh, beside the church. And I thought to myself, well, how can I leave these folks? I, I can't leave them. I mean, after all, I've been to church to church preaching and, you know, I'd go back to the same church the next year that I went to previously and the same people were getting saved, you know, that kind of thing. You know, nothing was really sticking. And so I need to make sure these people um, stick and they're discipled. Well, by the time that was going on, I fell in love with the church and I thought to myself, God, this is what you want me to do 
for the rest of my life, and that is be involved in leadership in the church. And so as I'm sharing this series of messages with you on togetherness, it's not just the fact that um, I work for the church, but I've given my life for the cause of Jesus Christ through the body of Christ, through the church. And as we open to Ephesians chapter 1, we find that certainly the church at Ephesus, as Paul's writing this letter, is about the church. I was reading an article the other day where it says, you know, it's not so much people in the church are saying the church has no value. They're saying that they don't know how to use it. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to have things going on in their life through the church in order to help them grow in Christ and become more like Jesus Christ in their life. And so part of this series is just about that. Part of your small group lessons that are also on the church and on togetherness, on the unity of the body, are also pointing to that as well. And Paul was pointing to that as he spent three and a half years, the longest tenure of his ministry anywhere, at the town, the city of Ephesus. And he was not there at the time. He's writing back to them several years later. And he's writing to them, in the first three chapters at least, on a doctrinal, reminding them of what they need to believe and reminding them of who they are in Jesus Christ and what that means. The second half of the book is about practicing that, about applying that. How do I know this is about the church? Well, he talks about it in chapters one and two. We'll get to that in just a moment. But even in chapter five, where we're not going to look at this morning, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it. And then it says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The whole book is about the church in general, but also the church specifically and every single body of Christ. And so as we look at this, I want to just answer a few questions for your encouragement this morning. First of all, I would like to see uh, just a good beginning step in a series is what is the church? When we see this word, say in Ephesians 5, 25, just a few moments ago, that's the Greek word ecclesia, which means the called out ones. So we have been called out from the world, saved, called out from the world. That is the church. It's not a building. This building is not the church. And of course, you've heard that and you know that. So what is this building? Well, this building is the hospital. This building is the headquarters. This building is the university, the the school, the training facility. In order to train you, first of all, to receive Christ, and then to train you as a disciple to send you back out into the world that you can touch the world for Jesus Christ and have a life that really matters for the cause of Christ. I want you to notice how much integrated the church really is in this passage. Notice with me in verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as us chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, there is an individual election talked about in the Bible. First Peter 2, um, 1, 2 talks about the foreknowledge of God based upon the foreknowledge of God. But this one, this election, in order to understand the book, you must realize it's more of a church or a corporate type of election. For example, I just hold this cup and I'm going to make this uh, cup like the nation of Israel. This cup represents, we'll say Abraham. Abraham was the chosen one of God. 
Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, chosen of God to be the father of the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. Then we have, you know, people like, you know, Isaac, Joseph, uh, the 12 tribes, all the other Jewish people that have ever been born are in Abraham. And that was the Jewish nation. It's not so much, yes, it was the Jewish nation that was chosen in the Old Testament, but they were chosen in Abraham. Now, we, on the other hand, America is not the new Israel, the church is the new Israel. And Jesus Christ has been the chosen one. He was chosen to come, die on the cross for our sins. Now, when we receive Christ, you receive Christ, your neighbor received Christ, your child, your, your wife, or, or maybe, um, Billy, maybe Billy Graham, we'll say, somebody like that. They all received Christ. Just millions of people receiving Christ. Now they are in Christ. Christ being the elected, the chosen one, and then we are in him. Why is that important in the book? Because with this, we realize that we receive the abundant life, the power, and everything we need in Jesus Christ, and we are all organically related in a spiritual way in some, some way. In fact, God has never meant, meant us to go alone. We look at the illustration once again of God. There's a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before man was ever created, God had a loving relationship within himself. And so really, he didn't even need us. He wanted us and still does, but he doesn't need us to love because he already has an object of love. We look at the disciples. They were always, it seems like, together, at least three of them and usually all 12. And then the 120 on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says the Spirit of God fell upon that place and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so here we find in chapter one, already in the book of Ephesians, it says you are one, you are in unity, you are part of the body of Christ, Christ being the head and Ephesians five, Christ being the head and the church being the body of Jesus Christ. Now, why, why aren't we unified? Why do we not even hardly know one another? Why do we have so little in common sometimes? Why is it that we don't have the power that the New Testament church has? Well, the resources are here, even during the troubles, even during the trials of life. And everybody here is suffering, I know, in some way. Even through all that, we are brought together with a certain resource and a certain power in our life. Let's look at it together. Verse 15 of chapter 1, we get more into our text. He says, for this reason. Paul is writing this letter, and he says, I've got a reason for what I'm about to do, what I'm about to pray. And that reason is, looking back to chapter 1, you're in Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. Verses 3, 4, 9, 10, and 13. You're called by the Father, verse 4. Adopted uh, by the Spirit of God, verses 5 and 6. It says in verse 5, we have predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed, verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So you've been forgiven, you've been redeemed, you've been bought out, re redemption bought out of a slave market, slaves to sin, and now you've been forgiven of that sin. And because of that, and because you've been sealed, verse 13 of chapter one, in him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God comes in to live inside your heart the moment you receive eternal life. And how long does eternal life last? Well, for eternity. And so once you are truly born again, if it really happened to you and you really 
became a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are sealed and you can never lose that which is eternal. He says, because of those things, I want to thank God for you. And he gets, he, he sort of drives, drives himself to a summary. And he says, this is what I believe about you. Verse 15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So there's the church right there. There's the church. A people, a group of people have faith in God and a love toward one another. That is a description of the church. He says, because of this, verse 16, I thank God for you. And then he prays. What does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Why two different things? Wisdom, he says, look, I, I've taught you. I was there for three and a half years. I've taught you. Other pastors now have taught you the word of God. I want you to take what you know and ask God for great wisdom that you can apply what you already know. He says, not only that, but what has been revealed to you, I pray that God will reveal more to you because truth is never discovered. It is revealed. I repeat, truth is never discovered. It is revealed and it's revealed by God. He says, I pray that God would help you see the world, help you read the word of God and, and see what's going on there and also understand yourself. A revelation of God to you. He says, have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know something. What? Three things. What is the hope to which you were called? Now we talked about just a few moments ago, people called into the ministry. That's not this calling. This calling is one of salvation. A calling, he says, that needs to be sure. You need to be sure that you have been called to salvation. You need to be assured that if you were to die right now, you know for certain beyond any doubt that you would go to heaven because you've been bought out with a price, redeemed and forgiven of all your sins. He says, I, I hope that for you. I hope that not only you're saved and, and really a follower of Christ, but you know it. Because if you don't know it, you can't really uh, go anywhere from there. You, you can't progress like God wants you to progress. And he says, not only that, but the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Man, I tell you what, folks, I could go on all day about that. And I've preached on that many times before. The hope of your inheritance. That is the grace of God lavished on you. The, the grace of the abundant life of the fruit of the spirit. The love of God, the love of others. Heaven, rewards in heaven. And we can go on. Oftentimes, we, are a, we feel like we're under attack. And we sometimes act like victims. Dear friends, we are not victims. We are victors. We, we are not placed under persecution so much ever that we don't come out as more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. He says, you have this inheritance. This is who you are. Then he says this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working, look, he's working in our life with great might. He says the power. The Bible says that once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, the power belongs to God. Now, let me say two things about the power real quickly as I park on this just for a moment. God has the power on the outside, but he also has the power on the inside. Now, what do I mean by the outside? Well, Romans 8.28 says, For we know that all things work together for the good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Now, that verse centers around one thing, and that is we can trust God and we can pray to God and get answers to prayer based on what? That he is powerful over all the universe. He has all power, and he's worked in your life. He's worked out circumstances in your life that you, you could remember even now. In fact, uh, what happened to me when, when I became pastor of this church 28 years ago, a little over 28 years? Well, I was at a church, been there for almost nine years. I had not only pastored the church, but my wife and I founded the church. I felt like maybe they were a little bit too dependent on me, and I was kind of getting a little restless and saying, God, uh, maybe there's nothing else I can do here. Maybe you want me to, to move on. And that was in about, I don't know, uh, in the wintertime, December, January. I began to pray through all that. And by the 1st of March, I felt very comfortable being right there where I was, right there in Atlanta. I, I was sort of beginning, not, not there yet, but beginning to renew the vision. I felt like I had a big day coming up. You know, you got to have the big days. And I felt, felt like Friend Day was going to be a big day for us again. Friend Day the year before had we had almost doubled our attendance, and so we felt like we were going to do that again. That was coming up mid-March, and every, usually the weather's great, but guess what happened on the Saturday night before that Sunday? I mean, we had a special speaker, an athlete coming in to give us testimony. We had it all lined up. It snowed. I mean, ask me how badly did it snow? It was the biggest snowfall maybe in the history of Georgia, but certainly since I had lived there. Nothing like it. I mean, it was like... Well, in spots it was. But not only that, but I was at the grocery store the day before, on Saturday, and I was going through, and I, had, I didn't have a buggy. I had one of those little baskets, threw a couple of things in there. And these people were buying up the store. I mean, they were, they were like this, you know, one buggy in the front, one buggy in the back. And they were going through, I mean, they were taking up those 10 items or less aisles. You know, don't you just hate that? Just, no, never mind. Never mind. No, but anyway, I couldn't even get through the line. And so I finally got up there. I had my, I don't know, loaf of bread, peanut butter. And uh, the lady looked at me from the, ca the cashier, looked at me. And she said, is this all you're going to do to prepare for the big snow? I said, it's not going to snow. So anyway, that's all I bought. So the next day we wake up, it's what seemed like three feet of snow. I can't remember how long, but the cars were snowed in. I couldn't even start the car. I couldn't even get in the car. It's frozen over. I don't know how these northerners actually operate in that stuff, but we, we certainly couldn't do it in Georgia. No salt on the roads, you know, no nothing. And so I said, I've got to get some food in the house, you know. And I mean, I've got, I have three kids. And so I walk up to Kmart because that was the only thing that was around. It's about a mile away, and so, well, maybe it's five miles away. But anyway, I started walking. <laughs> it's probably a couple hundred yards, but I started walking, and it was snowing. The roads were slippery, and I was cold. I mean, it was, I was just not ever prepared for something like that. So I got to Kmart, and it was closed. So I headed back the other way, and I just thought, you know, God, if this friend day would have worked out, we would have had more people saved and I couldn't have left them and I felt comfortable being here. But you know, this happened for a reason. There's just, just some reason why this happened. And I was trying to give it all to him and almost stepped off a, a cliff really. I, I thought it was just a way to cut through a parking lot, but actually it was a 10 foot wall and I would have fell on top of cars if I'd have taken the step. 
And so God saved me from that. But anyway, I, I was close to home and uh, kind of quit snowing. And, and I'm just saying, you know, God, what do you have for me here? What, what can you do to speak to me? Well, I got to the, the house. I went up to the bedroom and, and Pam was on the phone. She says, uh, there's a guy from a man here from a church in Florida. Of course, she, she put it like that, you know. There's a man here from, um, on the phone. So I took the phone. Steve Bennett, chairman of the search committee here, we talked and we hit it off. And I'd already said no to two churches probably in the last 30 days. Didn't even want to talk about it. But this one, I just sort of hit it off. And I said, God, there, there might be something here. Something happened today for some reason. And the rest of history is I ended up here. And so the reason why I'm your pastor is because the biggest snowfall ever in the state of Georgia happened on a certain day, and I was too, too, I was too stupid to go and buy more than peanut butter the day before. That's the reason I'm here. You see, God works all kinds of things in your life, and just like he's working things in your life as well. But there's another kind of power, and that's the power on the inside. Once you and I receive Jesus into our heart, we have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. So there's power on the outside, and there's also power on the inside as well. How do we get that? How do we apply it? Now, we get it through the Holy Spirit, but how do we, how do we ignite the Holy Spirit within us? Through prayer, through the Bible reading, and through church. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some, but even more encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. We do it for encouragement. Why? Because it ignites us. It helps us. It inspires us. It brings power to our life. We see time after time in the Bible where Christians were getting together reading the Bible and there was power. Christians getting together and praying, there were power. Christians getting together and serving God and ministering and witnessing and preaching for God. And there was great revival and great power. You do it in the church. In fact, we become organically related. Organically related. He's the head, we're the body. Look with me in verse 11 or verse 12 of chapter 2. Skipping over some verses here we'll come back to. But in chapter 2, verse 12, it tells us how we are connected. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But that's pretty bad. That's a bad description. You know, in, in chapter 2, it says we're dead, we're doomed, and, uh, you know, we're disobedient. And here it says, hey, we're alienated. But verse 13, but now... And the whole chapter turns, and really the whole book turns on those two words. But now, you were once here, alienated from God, but now, he says, in Christ, same phrase again, in Christ, you were who were once or far off and been brought by, near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What's he talking about here? He's talking to Jewish people and Gentile people. And he's saying, look, you, were, you Gentile people were once afar off. Now, the Jewish people were close. Not there, but close. But he says, you are once afar off. You had no scripture. You had nothing to go by. And now God has brought you near. And now there is one 
There's one body, whether it be Jew or Gentile. Jewish people saved, Gentiles being saved. It's all one body in Jesus Christ. Now, what's the problem? He's saying, look, there's hostility. The problem in our society today, in our culture, is not one party over another. It's not one issue over another. It's sin. And I think we know that deep down. We just don't apply that. But notice what it says here. There's a particular thing here he's saying. He's saying the dividing wall of hostility. That word means despise or to hate. He mentions it again, beginning in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He's talking about the law here. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile, bringing us together, us both to God in one body, the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Twice he mentions hostility. The hatred, the despising of someone that you don't understand, someone that is not like you, someone that does not have the same identity as you. Here it says, in this, he tells us, he says, but now something different has happened in your life. Now, what was the reason? What was the reason? It was the law. The law. He said, well, the law of God's good, right? Yeah, Paul says so. Jesus said so. But you see, what happened was the Jewish people were supposed to take the law and be a light to the Gentile world. And they were not. As centuries went on, they became more proud of who they, are, who they were. And that's kind of natural among human beings. Proud of who you are. Proud of your identity. And so they became proud of who they are and they shunned the Gentiles. We have the law. We're the chosen people of God. And the Gentiles hated the Jews because they're proud of who they are and they, they, they exclude us and they think we're dirty. And he says, look, there's a wall there. And the wall is hostility caused by the law. The law is good, but it was used for the wrong reason. Here we find, definitely in the rest of the passage, where it talks about a building, an illustration here about a building. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been involved in building a house before. Um, my dad has built some houses, four or five houses, when he was younger. And uh, I was a teenager, and I had to help him. Notice I said I had to. I didn't even get paid for it. I mean, <laughs> You know, imagine that. But anyway, um, and I remember um, putting the two befores, we call them studs, on the floor of the house. And then we nailed them all together and we stood up the wall. All, the wall just went up together. And we had to brace it, put up another wall, another wall, another wall, all the load-bearing walls on the outside. But they wouldn't stand on their own. You say, well, yeah, but didn't you bolt them in? Yeah, we did that. Well, didn't you tie them together and bolt them together? Yeah, we did that. They would have still fallen first storm. It just didn't have any stability, not enough. So what did you have to do? You put the trusses on top, the roof. Once the roof went on, the whole building was strong. Whole building is stable. You take the roof off, things begin to, to dilapidate and, and eventually crumble. But the roof is what gives it stability. Now, here's what's happened with us. We were like in a house a house of disobedience, of doom. And we had no access to God whatsoever. Jesus comes along and he rips the roof right out of our life. 
Now we have access to God. Now we can look to heaven and get answers to prayer. Now we can read the Bible and get something out of the Bible. Now we can come to church and feel one with those around us. We have this relationship with God. So what's going to happen to the walls? Well, if you've truly been born again, those walls may stand for a small period of time, but eventually when the trials of life come, they will fall. And now not only do you have access to God, but you've got access to everybody else. Your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, no longer looking at them with hostility, but looking at them as someone who is either a born-again believer or needs to be a born-again believer. Somebody who is saved and a brother and sister in Christ or someone who needs salvation and is lost without Christ. Two different groups of people, lost and saved. Notice, here we find that the problem with them despising one another was identity. Now, when you and I um, like something, we might cut around with somebody. In fact, uh, let me just give you something that may make, may make you mad. I don't know. But um, some of you are Florida fans. Some of you are Alabama fans. And some of you are Georgia fans. I'm not going to take any pride in that. But here's the thing. We can joke around about one another, you know, back and forth. Back and forth. But... If you really identify as a football fan, that's just who you are. And this is your school. Maybe it's UCF. That's your school. Anybody says all of a sudden hostility is there. Why? Because you're just not liking something. You're not favoring something. That's just who you are. If you want to really know what somebody's priority in life if you insult them at their priority in life, who they are in Jesus Christ, or who they are as an identity, they're going to really get hostile. But if it doesn't mean that much to them, it does mean a lot, they'll, they'll discuss it. But not if they think, this is who I am. And we get our identity. Outside of Jesus Christ, we're in trouble. C.S. Lewis, in the book Mere Christianity, the great bestseller, said this, we, we are not so much upset about or, or pride. We don't pride ourselves, kind of how he put it. We don't pride ourselves in being rich. We just pride ourselves in being richer than the next guy. Because what happens, we're richer than the next guy. What are we known? We're, we're known as the rich guy. And so that's our identity. I remember, if I can say this, and I know that some of you are going to take this as just bragging, but, you know, it's a good illustration. When I was in first grade, I was a little ahead of some of the people, and I was the smartest kid in my first grade class. No, it's true. And by the end of the year, that was my identity. Anybody who had a question, they asked me. Of course, I didn't know it, but I'd act like I know it and knew it. And that was my identity. By the second grade, this young lady, young girl transferred in, and now I was the second smartest in the class. But I was the smartest boy. And so that was my identity. But the third grade, forget it. I was no longer the smartest kid in the class, not, not really close, as these others transferred in. And so I no longer identified myself as the smartest kid. Now, if you would have if you would attacked that in the first grade, I would have been offended. But by the fourth grade, I could care less. I wanted to be the best athlete in the class. You know, it's always something. But we identify, you know, class clown. 
Man, if you're the class clown, people don't laugh at your jokes, you're offended. If somebody else comes along that's funnier than you, it's crushing. If you're the athlete and you are the best athlete at the school and somebody beats you at a race or beats you, it's, it's crushing to you. What about your wealth? What happens if you lose it? What happens as a parent and you identify as a mother, you identify yourself as a dad? I mean, that's what you do. What happens when those children grow up and leave the nest? You say, well, I'm an engineer. I'm a pastor. What happens when we retire? When we identify as that? You know, a man is what a man does, as the old saying goes. What happens? You see, it's always temporary. It's always something that takes us really away from who we are in Christ. He says, but now, he says, but now the roof is off and the walls have fallen. Now, what does that mean? Verses 19, verse 19, as I skip down to that. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, three things, fellow citizens with the saints, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Three things here. And, and they're all, they're, they're so intimate. That they're more intimate the more you go. He says, first of all, you're fellow citizens because you're a born again believer. You're a part of the kingdom of God. We have a king. It's King Jesus. And you're part of that. But you say, well, that's, that's important. It's good to be part of America. And by the way, there's it's okay to be loyal to America, just like it's okay to be loyal to your family when you're we're more loyal to Jesus Christ. It's okay. You can be loyal to your family. You can be loyal to other things. The supremacy of it all must be Jesus Christ. But he says, fellow citizens, then he goes more intimate. He says, the household of faith, that's family. Dear friends, we're family. We're brothers. We're sisters. God is our father. Now, listen very carefully. Listen very carefully. This one pastor gives this illustration of his wife, uh, and he go, they're out shopping at a big store, and this guy comes up in the store, and he's kind of looking around the same place they're looking, and um, he, you know, he looks like, as Ted Trailer would say, his face fell into a tackle box, you know, and he had tattoos and all this stuff on him and the braids in the hair, and he uh, said his wife just went up to him and said, wow, you, you got that necklace on. That's kind of, you know, that's a Christian symbol. He says, I'm a Christian. And she says, really? And he says, yeah, what church do you go to? And he mentioned, he said, my, my husband's a pastor over this church. Hey, I, I have friends that go to that church. So everybody's sort of turning around looking. And they're looking and they're thinking to themselves, he says, and this was his comment, these are two people who talk, are talking together that you would never even think would say hello to one another. And they're talking like they're old brothers and sisters. You know why? Because they are. One of the problems that we have in the church, we have groups of people together. You say, well, we're all interested in golf. We're, we're kind of hard hats. We're all interested in blue collar work. We're all engineers. We're all interested in tennis. Those are the things that we can discuss, but you need to realize that those are the things everybody can discuss. That's not what glues us together as a family. It's Jesus Christ and sharing about him in our life. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you don't have, you've got common commonality with people, you're maybe a little bit closer to them. 
I may be closer to somebody who invites me out to play golf. And even closer if you pay for it. But anyway, <laughs> but the commonality in our small groups, Jesus Christ. But he goes on to say, so you're a building. Well, how can that be more intimate? He says, you're, you're the building, the, Jesus Christ being the whole, uh, the, he says, you grow into a temple with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, a temple of God. That's a place of worship. It's a building. You say, well, how is being a building, part of a building, closer than a family? Well, have you ever bricked anything? Man, the mortar and the brick, how, how much closer can you get than that? Even when you destroy the brick wall, the mortar sticks to the brick like forever. You can never get it off. We are there, stuck together. And that identity is that I am part of this body. I'm part of this building. I'm part of the household of God. I'm a fellow citizen's citizen with Jesus Christ. I'm organically related to someone. And because of that, we gain power, the power of the Holy Spirit when we're together. We look at this identity knowing that the identity of this world is very fragile, by the way. You say, well, you know, I, I just felt like I'm, you know, most beautiful person in the world. Well, okay. What's going to happen when you get old? Well, I'm, I'm the best doctor, best surgeon ever. I know guys that had to retire from that early because of a bad back, shaky hands. What happens when that's gone? Again, you're a parent. What happens when the, when the children are gone? What happens when you do have to retire? All of these things are very temporary. The only identity that is permanent, powerful, meaningful, eternal is that identity with Jesus Christ. Yes, I am an American, but I'm a, I'm a Christian first. Yes, I, I, I am living in Orlando, and I'm a Floridian now. After 28 years, I could say that. But I'm a Christian first. I'm a son, but I'm a Christian first. I'm a husband, I'm a father, but I'm a Christian first. I belong to the body of Christ first. And that identity, that identity is permanent and eternal. So I want to ask you something. When someone attacks something that you believe, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? You say, well, I get pretty mad. I always want to get back to them. Get right back. Well, that's probably because that's where your identity lies. First and foremost, even beyond Jesus Christ. You say, wow, I'd like to be a part of a building like that. I'd be part of a family like that. How do I get in? How do I have that kind of satisfaction and power in my life? How do I... How do I do that? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any person could brag about it. You see, here's the bad news is. The bad news is we're all sinners separated from God. Nobody here is perfect. The worst news is can't do anything about it. The good news is Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for your sins, and the greatest news of all is that you cannot save yourself. 
that Jesus Christ has already done it for you. He died on the cross. He rose again on the third day. And simply by his grace, we come into the body of Christ through receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Have you done that? If you were to die right now, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? If not, I want to give you the opportunity to receive Christ today. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If, you, if that is the desire of your heart, would you pray this prayer with me right now? You can pray as silently as I pray aloud. Invite those on um, internet and television to pray with us as well. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. Forgive me of all my sins and make me the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.